This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for October 23rd, 2017. Last week, I talked to a former CIA agent about why he joined, why he left, and why he was jailed for espionage. In the second part of this interview, I'm going to talk about his views on unstable regions of the world and what can be done to improve them. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. In last week's podcast, John Kiriakou explained how he came to join the CIA, how he came to leave, and how he ended up in a federal prison for espionage when he revealed details of torture methods that the CIA was using. But John's also an expert on many countries around the world where he has served, particularly in Central Asia, and I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone with his inside knowledge, so I continued with this question. I know that you have a lot of expertise, um, particularly in South Asia and uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan and so forth. One question that really I think a lot of people in the US have not yet answered, is Pakistan an ally of the US? Oh, that's a very difficult question. Um, I personally have uh, a, a, a place in my heart for Pakistan. I, I worked very closely with Pakistani intelligence and military authorities with the Pakistani police, I found them to be fearless and reliable. Uh, but, but with that said, I was working only with Pakistani counterterrorism officers. Now, you have to remember also that it was the Pakistani intelligence service that created the Taliban hmm. as a way to protect Pakistani truck traffic crossing Afghanistan to Iran. Uh, you have to remember that the Pakistani intelligence service created the Kashmiri separatist groups that launched the Mumbai attacks. This, uh, just for listeners who don't know, this is Kashmir is a disputed territory between Pakistan and India. India regularly accuses Pakistan of funding anti-Indian terrorists in Kashmir who attack uh, the Indian security forces and launched a, a very serious attack in Mumbai, which is a major city in India, uh, a long way from Kashmir. A long way from Kashmir, indeed. Um, so this is one of those questions where the answer is not really um, easy. The answer really is is yes and no. Pakistan is a good and trustworthy ally, and no, Pakistan is not a good and trustworthy ally. It depends on the issue. And another problem really is on the American part, where we really don't we don't really understand domestic Pakistani politics or or domestic pressure that Pakistani governments face. You know, we we tell the Pakistanis we want something done, and we want it done yesterday. Mm -hmm. And that's not how you treat an ally. You have to work with that ally. And there are some times when the ally can't respond because there are domestic political issues at play. 
in advance of the attack on Afghanistan in uh, late 2001, after the 9-11 bombings, it was reported that the US and the CIA in particular threatened Pakistan and said they'd be bombed back into the Stone Age if they didn't ally themselves with the United States in that war against uh, the then Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I never believed that. Uh, that was really not a part of the a part of the conversation when I was involved. And certainly no Pakistani official, you know, foreign ministry, defense ministry, intelligence service ever mentioned anything like that to me. Somehow that that got into the press and took on a life of its own, but I never believed it to be true. Okay. One one other thing that's been reported as coming from the CIA about Pakistan is that, and different years have been given, some of them have passed, when the CIA expected Pakistan to effectively become a, a failed state. Do you have any insight into that? And do you think it's likely to be true? No, I, I've read those reports too. And I, I also never believed those. You know, the Pakistani, the Pakistani um, military is very strong. Its uh, leadership is trained almost exclusively in the UK. Uh, the economy is strong enough that it can keep muddling through its various uh, setbacks. So, no, I, I would not, I would not put Pakistan on a list of even the the, the twenty five likeliest countries to to fail. One thing that's been observed is that, of course, there is a lot of Taliban stroke uh, IS inspired violence, bombing and so forth, both in Pakistan and in Afghanistan with Pakistani links. Yes. One thing that's been observed on that is that despite the narrative that this is from uh, hopeless people who have nothing else to live for, in fact, a lot of the people who end up being suicide bombers come from quite wealthy, well-educated backgrounds. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, that's a very important point. And, and this is really the failure of the Pakistani government to integrate to integrate all of these various groups into the political process in the country. You know, there there are some people, and and this is not an economic issue. There are some people, as you say, the children of of wealthy parents who just don't feel like they have a stake in society. They have nothing to lose, and so they turn to. Groups like Islamic State or the Taliban or Al Qaeda. But Runa, roll back. Hold on for a second, John. These aren't people. Who, perhaps, however they feel, they're certainly not people who don't have anything to lose. They're people who have a good education, which is something that's not everybody has in Pakistan and which has a very high premium on it. But there seems to be an effect that it's not people that have nothing to lose, but who feel they have something to gain by going into a Shiite mosque and blowing themselves up. Oh, sure. Sure. No, I, you and I are actually in agreement on this. I think we're saying it in two different ways. Listen, when, when you're a Sunni Muslim and you hate Shia Muslims more than you love life itself, then yes, you're going to strap a bomb to yourself and you're going to walk into a Shia mosque. This happens every single year on Ashura and around the two Eids. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. But But the Pakistani government, historically, for whatever reason has been unable to bring those two sects together. You know, we see, we see in other countries there are problems between Sunnis and Shia, uh, certainly Afghanistan, Lebanon. But then historically, um, these, these problems between the sects uh, 
were, were not bad. I mean, time was in Lebanon before 1976 where you didn't even know if the person you're sitting next to was a Sunni or Shia or a Christian for that matter. It didn't even make any difference. Mm-hmm. Now it makes a difference. And the Pakistani government has been unable to to deal with that. Um, one thing, and you're correct, and for listeners perhaps who don't know, Sunni and Shia is is a division within Islam, which might be analogous. It's not the same thing, but it's analogous to the division perhaps between Protestants and Catholics in yeah. Christianity. Um, but it's very noticeable that in the past 30 years, let's say, there has been a growing inability to tolerate difference, particularly within uh, Sunni Islam. And this seems to be a, uh, you know, a historical shift in attitude. And I'm sure people have seen, you know, shared on Facebook and so forth, photographs of Kabul and Karachi and so forth and, and Tehran as well in the, in the 1960s with uh, women right. wearing short skirts and, you know, could be mistaken for, for, you know, Latino people in the United States. Is there something that has just a switch that has flipped there? You, you know, you were a specialist, especially, particularly in Pakistan. Is there something that's just gone terribly wrong there that we don't understand? You know, a lot of scholars, um, including scholars that I studied under, I have a, one of my degrees is in Middle Eastern studies with a, with a focus on Islamic theology. Uh, a lot of scholars point to the Iranian revolution, that it emboldened Shia Muslims who are a minority in the mm-hmm. Middle East. And as a result, there was a reaction among Sunnis that manifested itself for the first time uh, during the attack on the Holy Kaaba in 1979, um, and that the region has never recovered from that intellectually, that this hatred has has continued and indeed it's grown since 1979 because the Shias in the form of the Iranians overstepped their bounds back then. When you say overstepped their bounds, Shias typically in a lot at least not in Iran but in some other uh, Middle Eastern countries would typically be more working class probably not as wealthy perhaps not as well educated or well connected is is this a reaction to perhaps she is getting a bit uppity well that you know again that's a very good question and let's let's use Bahrain as an example mm-hmm. Bahrain is a majority Shia country with a Sunni ruling family the Sunni ruling family, of course, is is rich beyond any description you and I can engage in. Um, most of the non-royal Sunnis in Bahrain are also quite wealthy. Uh, when when you're Sunni and you say you're middle class, that's that's upper class here in the United States. They're business owners. They all drive Mercedes Benzes or Range Rovers. They live in beautiful houses. The majority Sunnis, I'm sorry, the majority Shias in Bahrain are oppressed. They have fewer political rights. They have to get the government's permission to attend university. Um, They have to get permission to open a business. They tend to be uneducated or undereducated. They're they're oppressed. There's no other way to say it. And some of it should be noted. Some of the um, Arab Spring um, unrest was very much uh, along the lines of underclass Shias trying to assert their rights in Sunni-dominated countries. That's right, including Bahrain. A lot of people forget that at the very beginning of the Arab Spring, there actually were riots and uh, and uh, disturbances in Bahrain. 
and uh, various various um, uh, medics were, for example, subjected to prison sentences for the crime of having treated people who were injured in those riots. Correct. Correct. And that's something that the Bahraini government, I think, in retrospect, is not proud of. Okay. And really what I'm getting at in all of this is, is there an undercurrent? Is there something happening in the Islamic world that's obviously having a huge impact on the, on, on the West, but that we just don't understand? Oh, I think so. Listen, I think that Americans as a whole are so ignorant of the Middle East, so ignorant of Islam, that it's virtually impossible for us or even for our government to come up with a cohesive policy. Because even many of our policymakers and certainly most of our elected officials just have no understanding of the religion or of the region or of the politics of the region. And do you think that it's the CIA's job to convey that at least to the U.S. government? Um not necessarily. I believe it's the State Department's job. Um, the State Department is the is the uh, organization that has that outreach uh, program. But, but the CIA's job is to it's very simply to um, to steal secrets and to analyze those secrets uh, so that they can provide the best possible um, policy analysis for the policymakers. Uh, sure, and, and you're correct that the the State Department isn't is responsible for the maybe less covert. Uh, advice that they should be given to lawmakers. But it seems to me that even I, I shouldn't say even I, I and many others don't have a full understanding of what's going on. But there seems to be a lot going on that people in the West don't understand. And that wouldn't really matter an awful lot if it wasn't for the fact that they're sitting in the case of the Arabic countries on a very large percentage of the world's oil. And uh, in the case of um, some other countries on at least ambitions to have nuclear weapons. Right. Is, is there a case that the Arabic world is going through perhaps what Europe went through in the wars of religion in the in the uh, Middle Ages. But the worst thing that you could do in the Middle Ages in Europe was uh, cut someone's head off with a sword. You, you've got that type of irrationality mixed with nuclear weapons. Oh, it's it's so true, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I can I can see the analogy. Sure, I, I can see how the situation today is analogous to what the Europeans went through. You know, I've I've always thought that fundamentalist religion of any kind holds people back and it keeps countries from developing. If you look back, if you compare Pakistan with South Korea, for example, mm -hmm. in 1964, Pakistan and South Korea had the same GDP. Can you imagine that? Pakistan and South GDP. Korea. So South Korea is the country with the highest internet speed in the world. It's where all of our Samsung Android phones are made. And Pakistan, basically, they make cheap underwear. Exactly. In, in Pakistan, it's all about textiles. And that's the only thing that keeps the company, the, the, company, the country afloat. Um, so it, it's an issue of, of development. When, when the plurality of your college graduates earn degrees in Islamic studies, that's not going to help you develop your country in any way. 
One, one thing I've done, I've talked previously to a guy called Nathan D'Amigo. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He would be part of the, um, the, the alt-right white identitarian movement. And he, one of the tenets of their belief is that people from a, an Islamic background are just culturally unsuitable, unfit to live in the West. Is what you're saying I'm not suggesting that you're, you, you have any racist views, but is what you're saying perhaps giving credence to that? No, I don't think so, because we, we have so many Muslims who have emigrated to the United States who have really made it in this country. You know, I, 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 remember, I remember being fascinated once I was in Yemen, and, um, and the ambassador mentioned offhandedly that 50,000 uh, social security checks are mailed out by the U.S. Embassy in Sana'a, Yemen, every month. And I said, 50,000 social security checks? How can that be? And he said, that's 50,000 people who went to the States, who worked at General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, and who moved back to Yemen to buy you know, land and, and a house and whatever, and raise their, their children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're, they're people who, who came to the United States, they, they integrated themselves into American society, they worked hard, and they decided to invest their money back home. Um, they fit in perfectly well in, in American uh, culture and society. I can't even begin to tell you how many Muslims I worked with um, at the CIA who were, who were smart and hardworking and courageous and really served their country very patriotically. I, I don't think it has anything to do with Islam. I think it has to do with education. Come on, you know, Muslim countries, some Muslim countries at least have very high levels of education, even if, as you say, a large portion of that is uh, in Islamic the- uh, theology. Yeah, but I, I'm i not counting Islamic theology as real education. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, I mean can you imagine if, if a plurality of American graduates got their degrees in biblical studies or in evangelical studies, where would we be as a country? You need engineers and doctors and teachers and lawyers. Mm -hmm. That's what they need to be putting out. If you were whispering in the ear of uh, either the president or the uh, secretary of state, and you're saying, what a long-term policy to essentially diffuse the tension that there is between the Islamic world and the Western world, what would your top advice be? I think that we need to have a very robust program of international development aid. And I think that that aid uh, needs to focus on education and on public works, because that's the only thing that's going to pull these countries out of poverty and bring them into, into international society. And how confident would you be that that would work? I am confident. Uh, the thing is, though, here in the United States, we have we have this innate um, hatred and distrust of international aid, foreign aid. It, it accounts for one-tenth of one percent of the federal budget, and it's the first thing that most Americans want to scrap. I think that if, if these countries, and I'm talking about places like, you know, Tunisia, Algeria, Yemen, et cetera, et cetera, if they had clean water – reliable electricity, and an intact educational system that's not focused solely on Quranic studies, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of their problems would go away in a generation or two. 
John Kiriakou, former CIA officer and author of Doing Time Like a Spy, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on October 23rd, 2017. I have links to John's books and references for other things we mentioned in the podcast notes that you can find on the website. And if you know someone else who I should interview or have an idea of other topics I should be covering, I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O. You can also follow John Kiriakou at John Kiriakou. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed for all of that on the website. And if you don't use a podcast app or software, just subscribe by email. Enter your email address on the Challenging Opinions website and you'll get a free email with a link to listen each time that a new show goes up with no spam at all. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's October 30th, I'll be talking to Barrett Holmes Pittner. He's an African-American journalist who has been writing in detail about what's called the new Jim Crow laws, voting regulations that seem intended to make it difficult for people in democratic-leaning demographics to vote. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.